Psalm 50 of the Treasury of David. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Treasury of David, Volume 2, by Charles Spurgeon. Psalm 50. Title, A Psalm of Asaph. This is the first of the Psalm of Asaph, but whether it was the production of that eminent musician, or merely dedicated to him, we cannot tell. The titles of twelve psalms bear his name, but it could not in all of them be meant to ascribe their authorship to him, for several of these psalms are of too late a date to have been composed by the same writer as the others. There was an Asaph in David's time, who was one of David's chief musicians, and his family appear to have continued long after in their hereditary office of temple musicians. And Asaph is mentioned as a recorder or secretary in the days of Hezekiah, Second Kings 18.18, and another was keeper of the royal forests under Artaxerxes. That Asaph did most certainly write some of the Psalms is clear from Second Chronicles 29.30, where it is recorded that the Levites were commanded to sing praises unto the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer, but that other Asaphic Psalms were not of his composition, but were only committed to his care as a musician, is equally certain from First Chronicles 14.7, where David is said to have delivered a psalm into the hand of Asaph and his brethren. It matters little to us whether he wrote or sang, for poet and musician are near akin, and if one composes words and another sets them to music, they rejoice together before the Lord. Division. The Lord is represented as summoning the whole earth to hear his declaration. 1 to 6. He then declares the nature of the worship which he accepts. 7 to 15. Accuses the ungodly of breaches of the precepts of the second table. 16 to 21. And closes the court with a word of threatening. 22. And a direction of grace. 23. Exposition verses 1 through 6. The mighty God, even the Lord, hath spoken, and called the earth from the rising of the sun unto the going down thereof. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God hath shined. Our God shall come, and shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous round about him. He shall call to the heavens from above, and to the earth, that he may judge his people. Gather my saints together unto me, those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens shall declare his righteousness, for God is judge himself. Selah. 1. The mighty God, even the Lord. El, Elohim, Jehovah, three glorious names for the God of Israel. To render the address more impressive, these august titles are mentioned, just as in royal decrees the names and dignities of monarchs are placed in the forefront. Here the true God is described as almighty, as the only and perfect object of adoration, and as the self-existent one. Hath spoken, and called the earth from the rising of the sun until the going down thereof. The dominion of Jehovah extends over the whole earth, and therefore to all mankind is his decree directed. The east and the west are bidden to hear the God who makes his sun to rise on every quarter of the globe.
Shall the summons of the great king be despised? Will we dare provoke him to anger by slighting his call? 2. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God hath shined. The Lord is represented not only as speaking to the earth, but as coming forth to reveal the glory of his presence to an assembled universe. God of old dwelt in Zion among his chosen people, but here the beams of his splendor are described as shining forth upon all nations. The sun was spoken of in the first verse, but here is a far brighter sun. The majesty of God is most conspicuous among his own elect, but it is not confined to them. The church is not a dark lantern, but a candlestick. God shines not only in Zion, but out of her. She is made perfect in beauty by his indwelling, and that beauty is seen by all observers when the Lord shines forth from her. Observe how with trumpet voice and flaming ensign the infinite Jehovah summons the heavens and the earth to hearken to his word. 3. Our God shall come. The psalmist speaks of himself and his brethren as standing in immediate anticipation of the appearing of the Lord upon the scene. He comes, they say, our covenant God is coming. They can hear his voice from afar, and perceive the splendor of his attending train. Even thus should we await the long-promised appearing of the Lord from heaven. And shall not keep silence. He comes to speak, to plead with his people, to accuse and judge the ungodly. He has been silent long in patience, but soon he will speak with power. What a moment of awe when the Omnipotent is expected to reveal himself! What will be the reverent joy and solemn expectation when the poetic scene of this psalm becomes in the last great day an actual reality? A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous round about him. Flame and hurricane are frequently described as the attendants of the divine appearance. Our God is a consuming fire, at the brightness that was before him, his thick clouds passed, hailstones and coals of fire. Psalm 18, verse 12. He rode upon a cherub, and did fly, yea, he did fly upon the wings of the wind. The Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. Second Thessalonians 1, verses 7 and 8. Fire is the emblem of justice in action and the tempest is a token of his overwhelming power. Who will not listen in solemn silence when such is the tribunal from which the judge pleads with heaven and earth? 4. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth. Angels and men, the upper and the lower worlds, are called to witness the solemn scene. The whole creation shall stand in court to testify to the solemnity and the truth of the divine pleading. Both earth beneath and heaven above shall unite in condemning sin. The guilty shall have no appeal, though all are summoned that they may appeal if they dare. Both angels and men have seen the guilt of mankind and the goodness of the Lord. They shall therefore confess the justice of the divine utterance, and say Amen to the sentence of the supreme judge. Alas, ye despisers! What will ye do, and to whom will ye fly? That they may judge his people. Judgment begins at the house of God. The trial of the visible people of God will be a most awful ceremonial. 
he will thoroughly purge his floor, he will discern between his nominal and his real people, and that in open court, the whole universe looking on. My soul, when this actually takes place, how will it fare with thee? Canst thou endure the day of his coming? 5. Gather my saints together unto me. Go, ye swift-winged messengers, and separate the precious from the vile. Gather out the wheat of the heavenly garner. Let the long-scattered but elect people, known by my separating grace to be my sanctified ones, be now assembled in one place. All are not saints who seem to be so. A severance must be made. Therefore let all who profess to be saints be gathered before my throne of judgment, and let them hear the word which will search and try the whole, that the false may be convicted and the true revealed. Those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. This is the grand test, and yet some have dared to imitate it. The covenant was ratified by the slaying of victims, the cutting and dividing of offerings. This the righteous have done by accepting with true faith the great propitiatory sacrifice, and this the pretenders have done in merely outward form. Let them be gathered before the throne for trial and testing, and as many as have really ratified the covenant by faith in the Lord Jesus shall be attested before all worlds as the objects of distinguishing grace, while formalists shall learn that outward sacrifices are all in vain. Oh, solemn assize, how does my soul bow in awe at the prospect thereof? 6. And the heavens shall declare his righteousness. Celestial intelligences and the spirits of just men made perfect shall magnify the infallible judgment of the divine tribunal. Now they doubtless wonder at the hypocrisy of men. Then they shall equally marvel at the exactness of the severance between the true and the false. For God is the judge himself. This is the reason for the correctness of the judgment. Priests of old and churches of later times were readily deceived, but not so to the all-discerning Lord. No deputy judge sits on the great white throne. The injured Lord of all himself weighs the evidence and allots the vengeance or reward. The scene in the psalm is a grand poetical conception, but it is also an inspired prophecy of that day which shall burn as an oven, when the Lord shall discern between him that feareth him and him that feareth him not. Selah. Here we may well pause in reverent prostration, in deep searching of heart, in humble prayer, and in awestruck expectation. Verses 7 to 15. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against thee. I am God, even thy God. I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings to have been continually before me. I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he-goats out of thy folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine, and the fullness thereof. Will I eat the flesh of bulls, or drink the blood of goats? Offer unto God thanksgiving, and pay thy vows unto the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. 
I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. The address which follows is directed to the professed people of God. It is clearly, in the first place, meant for Israel, but it is equally applicable to the visible church of God in every age. It declares the futility of external worship when spiritual faith is absent, and the mere outward ceremonial is rested in. 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. Because Jehovah speaks, and they are avowedly his own people, they are bound to give earnest heed. Let me speak, saith the great I am. The heavens and earth are but listeners, the Lord is about both to testify and to judge. O Israel, and I will testify against thee. Their covenant name is mentioned to give point to the address. It was a double evil that the chosen nation should become so carnal, so unspiritual, so false, so heartless to their God. God himself, whose eyes sleep not, who is not misled by rumor, but sees for himself, enters on the scene as witness against his favored nation. Alas for us when God, even our Father's God, testifies to the hypocrisy of the visible church. I am God, even thy God. He had taken them to be his peculiar people above all other nations, and they had in the most solemn manner avowed that he was their God. Hence the special reason for calling them to account. The law began with, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And now the session of their judgment opens with the same reminder of their singular position, privilege, and responsibility. It is not only that Jehovah is God, but thy God, O Israel. This it is that makes thee so amenable to his searching reproofs. 8. I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings to have been ever before me. Though they had not failed in maintaining his outward worship, or even if they had, he was not about to call them to account for this. A more weighty matter was now under consideration. They thought the daily sacrifices and the abounding burnt offerings to be everything. He counted them nothing if the inner sacrifice of heart devotion had been neglected. What was greatest to them was least with God. It is even so today. Sacraments, so called, and sacred rites, are the main concern with unconverted but religious men, but with the Most High, the spiritual worship which they forget is the sole matter. Let the external be maintained by all means, according to the divine command, but if the secret and spiritual be not in them, they are a vain oblation, a dead ritual, and even an abomination before the Lord. 9. I will take no bullock out of thy house. Foolishly they dreamed that bullocks with horns and hoofs could please the Lord, when indeed he sought for hearts and souls. Impiously they fancied that Jehovah needed these supplies, and that if they fed his altar with their fat beasts, he would be content. What he intended for their instruction, they made their confidence. They remembered not that to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams nor he-goats out of thy folds. He mentions these lesser victims as if to rouse their common sense to see that the great Creator could find no satisfaction in mere animal offerings. 
If he needed these, he would not appeal to their scanty stalls and folds. In fact, he here refuses to take so much as one, if they brought them under the false and dishonoring view that they were in themselves pleasing to him. This shows that the sacrifices of the law were symbolical of higher and spiritual things, and were not pleasing to God except under their typical aspect. The believing worshipper looking beyond the outward was accepted. The unspiritual who had no respect to their meaning was wasting his substance and blaspheming the God of heaven. 10. For every beast of the forest is mine. How could they imagine that the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, had need of beasts, when all the countless hordes that find shelter in a thousand forests and wildernesses belong to him? and the cattle upon a thousand hills. Not alone the wild beasts, but also the tamer creatures are all his own. Even if God cared for these things, he could supply himself. Their cattle were not, after all, their own, but were still the great Creator's property. Why then should he be beholden to them? From Dan to Beersheba, from Nebaioth to Lebanon, there fed not a beast which was not marked with the name of the great shepherd. Why, then, should he crave oblations of Israel? What a slight is here put even upon sacrifices of divine appointment when wrongly viewed as in themselves pleasing to God. And all this to be so expressly stated under the law. How much more is this clear under the gospel when it is so much more plainly revealed that God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth? Ye ritualists, ye sacramentarians, ye modern Pharisees, what say ye to this? 11. I know all the fowls of the mountains. All the winged creatures are under my inspection and near my hand. What then can be the value of your pairs of turtle doves and your two young pigeons? The great Lord not only feeds all his creatures, but is well acquainted with each one. How wondrous is this knowledge! and the wild beasts of the field are mine. The whole population moving over the plain belongs to me. Why then should I seek your beeves and rams? In me all things live and move. How mad are you to suppose that I desire your living things? A spiritual God demands other life than that which is seen in animals. He looks for spiritual sacrifice, for the love, the trust, the praise, the life of your hearts. 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee. Strange conception, a hungry God. Yet if such an absurd ideal could be truth, and if the Lord hungered for meat, he would not ask it of men. He could provide for himself out of his own possessions. He would not turn suppliant to his own creatures. Even under the grossest idea of God, faith in outward ceremonies is ridiculous. Do men fancy that the Lord needs banners and music and incense and fine linen? If he did, the stars would emblazon his standard, the winds and the waves become his orchestra, ten thousand times ten thousand flowers would breathe forth perfume, the snow would be his alb, the rainbow his girdle, the clouds of light his mantle. O fools and slow of heart, ye worship ye know not what! for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. 
what can he need who is owner of all things and able to create as he wills? Thus overwhelmingly does the Lord pour forth his arguments upon formalists. 13. Will I eat the flesh of bulls, or drink the blood of goats? Are you so infatuated as to think this? Is the great I am subject to corporeal wants, and are they to be thus grossly satisfied? Heathens thought thus of their idols, but dare ye think thus of the God who made the heavens and the earth? Can ye have fallen so low as to think thus of me, O Israel? What vivid reasoning is here! How the fire-flashes dart into the idiot faces of trusters in outward forms! Ye dupes of Rome, can ye read this and be unmoved? The expostulation is indignant, the questions utterly confound, the conclusion is inevitable, heart-worship only can be acceptable with the true God. It is inconceivable that outward things can gratify Him, except so far as through them our faith and love express themselves. 14. Offer unto God thanksgiving. No longer look at your sacrifices as in themselves gifts pleasing to me, but present them as the attributes of your gratitude. It is then that I will accept them, but not while your souls have no love and no thankfulness to offer me. The sacrifices, as considered in themselves, are contemned, but the internal emotions of love consequent upon a remembrance of divine goodness are commended as the substance, meaning, and soul of sacrifice. Even when the legal ceremonials were not abolished, this was true, and when they came to an end, this truth was more than ever made manifest. Not for want of bullocks on the altar was Israel blamed, but for want of thankful adoration before the Lord. She excelled in the visible, but in the inward grace, which is the one thing needful, she sadly failed. Too many in these days are in the same condemnation. And pay thy vows unto the Most High. Let the sacrifice be really presented to the God who seeth the heart, pay to him the love you promised, the service you covenanted to render, the loyalty of heart you have vowed to maintain. Oh, for grace to do this! Oh, that we may be graciously enabled to love God, and live up to our profession! To be, indeed, the servants of the Lord, the lovers of Jesus, this is our main concern. What avails our baptism, to what end our gatherings at the Lord's table, to what purpose our solemn assemblies, if we have not the fear of the Lord, and vital godliness reigning within our bosoms? 15. And call upon me in the day of trouble. O oh, blessed verse! Is this then true sacrifice? Is it an offering to ask an alms of heaven? It is even so. The king himself so regards it. For herein is faith manifested, herein is love proved, for in the hour of peril we fly to those we love. It seems a small thing to pray to God when we are distressed, yet is it a more acceptable worship than the mere heartless presentation of bullocks and he-goats. This is a voice from the throne, and how full of mercy it is! It is very tempestuous round about Jehovah, and yet what soft drops of mercy's rain drop from the bosom of the storm! Who would not offer such sacrifice? Troubled one, haste to present it now! 
who shall say that Old Testament saints did not know the gospel? Its very spirit and essence breathes like frankincense all around this holy psalm. I will deliver thee. The reality of thy sacrifice of prayer shall be seen in its answer. Whether the smoke of burning bulls be sweet to me or no, certainly thy humble prayer shall be, and I will prove it so by my gracious reply to thy supplication. This promise is very large, and may refer both to temporal and eternal deliverances. Faith can turn it every way like the sword of the cherubim. And thou shalt glorify me. Thy prayer will honor me, and thy grateful perception of my answering mercy will also glorify me. The goats and bullocks would prove a failure, but the true sacrifice never could. The calves of the stall might be a vain oblation, but not the calves of sincere lips. Thus we see what is true ritual. Here we read inspired rubrics. Spiritual worship is the great, the essential matter. All else without it is rather provoking than pleasing to God. As helps to the soul, outward offerings are precious, but when men went not beyond them, even their hallowed things were profaned in the view of heaven. Verses 16 to 21. But unto the wicked God saith, What hast thou to do to declare my statutes, or that thou shouldest take my covenant in thy mouth? Seeing thou hatest instruction, and castest my words behind thee. When thou sawest a thief, then thou consentedst with him, and hast been partaker with adulterers. Thou givest thy mouth to evil, and thy tongue frameth deceit. Thou sittest and speakest against thy brother, thou slanderest thine own mother's son. These things hast thou done, and I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself. But I will reprove thee, and set them in order before thine eyes." Here the Lord turns to the manifestly wicked among his people, and such there were even in the highest places of his sanctuary. If moral formalists had been rebuked, how much more these immoral pretenders to fellowship with heaven! If the lack of heart spoiled the worship of the more decent and virtuous, how much more would violations of the law, committed with a high hand, corrupt the sacrifices of the wicked? 16 but unto the wicked God saith. To the breakers of the second table he now addresses himself. He had previously spoken to the neglectors of the first. What hast thou to do to declare my statutes? You violate openly my moral law, and yet are great sticklers for my ceremonial commands. What have you to do with them? What interest can you have in them? Do you dare to teach my law to others, and profane it yourselves? What impudence, what blasphemy is this? Even if you claim to be the sons of Levi, what of that? Your wickedness disqualifies you, disinherits you, puts you out of the succession. It should silence you, and would if my people were as spiritual as I would have them, for they would refuse to hear you, and to pay you the portion of temporal things which is due to my true servants. You count up your holy days, you contend for rituals, you fight for externals, and yet the weightier matters of the law ye despise. Ye blind guides, ye strain out gnats and swallow camels, 
Your hypocrisy is written on your foreheads, and manifest to all. Or that thou shouldest take my covenant in thy mouth. Ye talk of being in covenant with me, and yet trample my holiness beneath your feet, as swine trample upon pearls. Think ye that I can brook this? Your mouths are full of lying and slander, and yet ye mouth my words as if they were fit morsels for such as you. How horrible and evil it is, that to this day we see men explaining doctrines who despise precepts. They make grace a coverlet for sin, and even judge themselves to be sound in the faith, while they are rotten in life. We need the grace of the doctrines as much as the doctrines of grace, and without it an apostle is but a Judas, and a fair-spoken professor is an errant enemy of the cross of Christ. 17. Seeing thou hatest instruction. Profane professors are often too wise to learn, too besotted with conceit to be taught of God. What a monstrosity that men should declare those statutes which with their hearts they do not know, and which in their lives they openly disavow! Woe unto the men who hate the instruction which they take upon themselves to give! And castest my words behind thee. Despising them, throwing them away as worthless, putting them out of sight as obnoxious. Many boasters of the law did this practically, and in these last days there are pickers and choosers of God's words who cannot endure the practical part of Scripture. They are disgusted at duty, they abhor responsibility, they disembowel texts of their plain meanings, they wrest the Scriptures to their own destruction. It is an ill sign when a man dares not look a Scripture in the face, and an evidence of brazen impudence when he tries to make it mean something less condemnatory of his sins, and endeavors to prove it to be less sweeping in its demands. How powerful is the argument that such men have no right to take the covenant of God into their mouths, seeing that its spirit does not regulate their lives! 18. When thou sawest a thief, then thou consentedst with him. Moral honesty cannot be absent where true grace is present. Those who excuse others in trickery are guilty themselves. Those who use others to do unjust actions for them are doubly so. If a man be ever so religious, if his own actions do not rebuke dishonesty, he is an accomplice with thieves. If we can acquiesce in anything which is not upright, we are not upright ourselves, and our religion is a lie and hast been partaker with adulterers. One by one the moral precepts are thus broken by the sinners in Zion. Under the cloak of piety, unclean livers conceal themselves. We may do this by smiling at unchaste jests, listening to indelicate expressions, and conniving at licentious behavior in our presence. And if we thus act, how dare we preach, or lead public prayer, or wear the Christian name? See how the Lord lays righteousness to the plummet! How plainly all this declares that without holiness no man shall see the Lord! No amount of ceremonial or theological accuracy can cover dishonesty and fornication. These filthy things must be either purged from us by the blood of Jesus, or they will kindle a fire in God's anger which will burn even to the lowest hell. 19. Thou givest thy mouth to evil. 
sins against the ninth commandment are here mentioned the man who surrenders himself to the habit of slander is a vile hypocrite if he associates himself with the people of god a man's health is readily judged by his tongue a foul mouth a foul heart some slander almost as often as they breathe and yet are great upholders of the church and great sticklers for holiness to what depths will not they go in evil who delight in spreading it with their tongues and thy tongue frameth deceit this is more deliberate sort of slander where the man dexterously elaborates false witness and concocts methods of defamation there is an ingenuity of calumny in some men and alas even in some who are thought to be followers of the lord jesus they manufacture falsehoods weave them into their loom hammer them on their anvil and then retail their wares in every company are these accepted with god though they bring their wealth to the altar and speak eloquently of truth and of salvation have they any favor with god we should blaspheme the holy god if we were to think so they are corrupt in his sight a stench in his nostrils he will cast all liars into hell let them preach and pray and sacrifice as they will till they become truthful the god of truth loathes them utterly twenty thou sittest and speakest against thy brother he sits down to it makes it his meat studies it resolves upon it becomes a master of defamation occupies the chair of calumny his nearest friend is not safe his dearest relative escapes not thou slanderest thine own mother's son he ought to love him best but he has an ill word for him the son of one's own mother was to the oriental a very tender relation but the wretched slanderer knows no claims of kindred he stabs his brother in the dark and aims a blow at him who came forth of the same womb yet he wraps himself in the robe of hypocrisy and dreams that he is a favorite of heaven an accepted worshipper of the lord are such monsters to be met with nowadays alas they pollute our churches still and our roots of bitterness spots in our solemn feasts wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness for ever perhaps some such may read these lines but they will probably read them in vain their eyes are too dim to see their own condition their hearts are waxen gross their ears are dull of hearing they are given up to a strong delusion to believe a lie that they may be damned twenty one these things hast thou done and i kept silence no swift judgment overthrew the sinner long-suffering reigned no thunder was heard in threatening and no bolt of fire was hurled in execution thou thoughtest that i was altogether such an one as thyself the inference drawn from the lord's patience was infamous the respited culprit thought his judge to be one of the same order as himself he offered sacrifice and deemed it accepted he continued in sin and remained unpunished and therefore he rudely said why need believe these crazy prophets god cares not how we live so long as we pay our tithes little does he consider how we get the plunder so long as we bring a bullock to his altar what will not men imagine of the lord at one time they liken the glory of israel to a calf 
and anon unto their brutish selves. But I will reprove thee. At last I will break silence and let thee know my mind, and set them in order before thine eyes. I will marshal thy sins in battle array. I will make thee see them. I will put them down item by item, classified and arranged. Thou shalt know that if silent a while, I was never blind or deaf. I will make thee perceive what thou hast tried to deny. I will leave the seat of mercy for the throne of judgment, and there will I let thee see how great the difference between thee and me. Verse 22. Now consider this, ye that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver. 22. Now, or, oh, it is a word of entreaty, for the Lord is loath even to let the most ungodly run on to destruction. Consider this. Take these truths to heart, ye who trust in ceremonies, and ye who live in vice, for both of you sin in that ye forget God. Bethink you how unaccepted you are, and turn unto the Lord. See how you have mocked the Eternal, and repent of your iniquities lest I tear you in pieces, as the lion rends his prey. And there be none to deliver, no saviour, no refuge, no hope. Ye reject the mediator, beware, for ye will sorely need one in the day of wrath, and none will be near to plead for you. How terrible, how complete, how painful, how humiliating will be the destruction of the wicked! God uses no soft words or velvet metaphors, nor may his servants do so when they speak of the wrath to come. O reader, consider this. Verse 23. Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me, and to him that ordereth his conversation aright will I show the salvation of God. 23. Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me. Praise is the best sacrifice true, hearty, gracious thanksgiving from a renewed mind. Not the lowing of bullocks bound to the altar, but the songs of the redeemed men are the music which the ear of Jehovah delights in. Sacrifice your loving gratitude, and God is honored thereby. And to him that ordereth his conversation aright will I show the salvation of God. Holy living is a choice evidence of salvation. He who submits his whole way to divine guidance, and is careful to honor God in his life, brings an offering which the Lord accepts through his dear Son, and such a one shall be more and more instructed, and made experimentally to know the Lord's salvation. He needs salvation, for the best ordering of the life cannot save us, but that salvation he shall have not to ceremonies, not to unpurified lips, is the blessing promised, but to grateful hearts and holy lives. O Lord, give us to stand in the judgment with those who have worshipped Thee aright and have seen Thy salvation. End of Psalm 50